Let's open our Bibles to the book of Jonah. We had our first lesson in Jonah last week, and we probably conclude with the book tonight. There's only four, four uh, chapters, and we covered the first two chapters. We had Jonah's commission and how that he took a flight away from God and was disobedient to his calling, ended up in the storm, and out of the storm he ended up in the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a fish. This was God's chastening upon him. In chapter 2, he prayed to God out of the fish's belly, and and he finally got through with his prayer. And when he did, at the last part of chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So he learned quite a lesson through all this experience. So we come to the third and fourth chapter. And in the third chapter, we find this second call comes to him. God calls to him again to continue to do the work that he first called him to do. And we'll pick up with chapter 3 and 4 and probably cover that tonight. So these studies in the Minor Prophets are very interesting. And I'd like to encourage everyone, we get into the book of Micah probably uh, Sunday night. So I'd like to encourage everyone to try to continue to come for these lessons in the Minor Prophets. They're only minor in the sense of length. They're not minor as far as importance are concerned because some of them are very major in their subject matter. But we do find that they're not as large as like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, various others of the prophets. But uh, they're small in, in volume. So as we look at the third chapter of Jonah, I want you to notice his second call. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now let's stop there for a moment. Look back in chapter 1, verse 1, and compare his first call and look at his, what happened. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up, look at verse 3, to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now I want you to see in chapter 3, verse 3, the difference in the attitude of Jonah and what he does. In 3, verse 3, it says, So Jonah rose and went unto Nineveh. I mean, it's time to start doing what God wants you to do, isn't it? So, he tried to run away from God at first. And if you were here, and even if you were not, you're familiar with what happened probably in the first two chapters of Jonah. How he got in the storm on the sea and the mariners throwed him overboard because that's the only way that during this chastening hand of God that the sea would calm down. And it did. And God prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah and... All of chapter 2 deals with the fact that he prayed to God out of the fish's belly. And uh, he told about him being just in the state of death, so to speak. And uh, one thing he said in that second chapter is very uh, wonderful. It's just kind of thrown in in verse 8 in the midst of all of his prayer. He says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And he realized what had caused him to be in such situation. And then we have already said in the 10th verse, that after he had said uh, uh, in verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. Well, verse 10, the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So there's one thing that old whale or fish or sea monster could not stand, and that was the fact that Jonah admitted salvation is of the Lord. And when he said that, that fish said, that's enough. And he got rid of it. 
and he throwed him out on the dry ground. Now then, there's been a lot of said about the sea monster, about the whale, about what kind of fish it is, and I'm not going to get into that fish story. I've already talked to you a little bit about it in our last lesson. But I think there's more important things to dwell on than that particular thought. And that is that we find his second calling here and his second commission. There's always controversial things you can deal with if you want to take up the subject, but sometimes it pays to leave them alone and just go on with what you know to be true. And, uh, and uh, we do know that Jesus compared uh, the experience of Jonah to his own. He was a type of Christ in a sense because he says that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And I heard a preacher this morning earlier talking about, well, Jesus died on Wednesday because that's the only way you could get three days and three nights. But you fail to take into to consideration the fact that uh, the Jews counted uh, parts of a day and parts of a night as a whole. And so Friday would make the three days and three nights if you count them in the proper way. And so uh, we're not going to go into that discussion either. That's another controversial, that's another controversial thing. And uh, all we know is that Jesus said, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the part of the earth. And you have to go back to study the Jewish reckoning of time if you want to even reconcile uh, that fact. But on the other hand, as I say, some people are just dogmatically and desperately uh, believing that that the high Sabbath, which was on Wednesday, uh, was the day Jesus died, and then therefore you could have the three full days and three full nights of the uh, 24-hour day and night that we know of to bring about the fact that uh, Jesus was there the full uh, time of those hours and days and nights. But we won't go into that either. I just wanted to bring you up to date on some of the controversies that you might find here in the, in the book of Jonah. And some people believe it's like a parable. You know, it wasn't a real thing, but we proved last week that Jonah was the son of a Metei. We gave you a reference to where you have a record of him in the book of First King, or Second Kings, chapter fourteen, verse twenty-five, where it says that uh, that it, it had come to pass what Jonah, the son of Amittai, had prophesied in the book of Kings. There, so he was a real person. And now we get into the meat of this chapter in chapter three. <clears throat> we'll take it verse by verse and discuss what happened to to uh, Jonah's call at this time. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that uh, not only was he called again to do the work God wanted him to do, but the message had not changed. God's message had not changed. The prophet had changed. The prophet had gone through some uh, bitter experiences. And you know the story that we read in the first and second chapter of the storm and the uh, fish swallowing up Jonah and uh, the, uh, the prayer out of the fish's belly and then God getting rid of him out from the fish. And now we find that the message is still the same. Go and preach to Nineveh that preaching unto it, the preaching that I bid thee. So we find that there's one thing that doesn't change. God's message doesn't change. Preachers may come and go. Things may happen to us that we don't do all we're supposed to do. But God's Word, God's message is still the same. And that's why we can count on it, because of its faithfulness. 
And I want you to notice then in verse 3, it says, uh, well, verse 2 says, Arise and go into Nineveh, that great city. There's been a lot of speculation about that great city. In studying, you find that it was about 60 miles in circumference, about 20 miles in diameter. And it's much larger, it was much larger, historians tell us, than the city of Babylon. And it had more than 120,000, or it had 120,000 people that could not tell their right hand from their left, indicating probably they were infants or too small to observe and to understand. And with the mature or the competent people, it's estimated that there was over one million residents at that time. Now then, people have discussed this, and it's another point of controversy. But if you look at the very last verse of the fourth chapter, it says, And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons. Six score. There's there's 20 in a score. So, six score thousand would be 120,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle. So the very last verse of the book tells us that there were 120,000 that were not yet mature enough to, to understand too much and that they were had not come to the age of accountability probably. Uh, in Deuteronomy it tells about those that not, do not know good and evil, so there's a certain time in life when children begin to grow up and understand the difference. Cannot tell their right hand from the left, but the saying of the thought. And... Uh, of course, I know a lot of grown-ups that can't do that. And <laughs> Don't you? But anyway, I've told people to go to the right or go to the left. They just go straight or turn around and go back. You never know which way they're going to go. But anyway, we don't know how many people, but we know that God calls it a great city. And that some say there's a greater Nineveh than uh, was uh, ordinarily spoken of, the, the whole of the city. And it was in Assyria, by the way. It was north of what is now Iraq. And uh, I think it would be Turkey now, wouldn't it, or in that area? But anyway, it was north of there. But uh, we don't know exactly all about it, but you can compare it with historical maps in your Bible and find out what's going on and see their location. But regardless of that, I want you to notice what Jonah did in verse 3. So, Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was the exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And said, and he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So, evidently, Jonah got in a great hurry at this time. I mean, he was running about doing God's work. And he was ready to go. In fact, the context will show you that the whole people knew about it because in the next few verses you'll see that it was proclaimed and evidently almost everyone there knew what was, was up. And the king himself declared, made a proclamation, said, you tell everybody to, to, to fast and to pray and, and repent and so on. We'll get into that in a moment. But it just goes to show you that once you, God gets a hold of you, you can do a lot of things you, you don't think you can do. Have you ever seen these stories and heard these stories where someone of the family that have a terrible automobile accident and the car would roll over and maybe the mother or a young daughter or someone of the family would just literally lift a car off of the body of one of the family? And I mean, ordinarily it would be impossible, but in a time of... Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen. And it seems like that it's a miraculous strength or 
because of the emotion or stir of it that, that, that great things are done in those cases of uh, where you find that kind of a situation. And I've heard stories like that. I have not seen them personally. But I know that God gives strength when it's needed for anyone. And uh, here in Jonah's call, He gave him the strength to really get busy about doing what he was supposed to do to start with. So that teaches us one lesson. We better be about it the first time, hadn't we? I mean, he could have saved all that experience of the storm and the the mariners uh, throwing them overboard. However, God has a purpose in all of it because they repented and cried unto God to, to deliver them. So even in Jonah's chastening and in the fact that God dealt with Jonah, uh, the mariners called upon God and they had called upon their gods, but finally they called upon God. And uh, I don't know if their repentance was true repentance or not, but at least it made them think. And I'm sure this message of Jonah to Nineveh here is going to make them think. Let's progress on down. In verse 4, Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. He didn't waste any time. And he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The prophet's message was a message of coming judgment. He didn't say repent and, and, and turn to God. He said 40 days. This was a message of repentance, though, because when God says He's going to judge, it's time to repent, isn't it? And so He says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed the fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. The immediate effect was faith in God. And they looked to God and they believed that God was going to keep His Word. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. They believed God. They took Him at His Word. That shows that belief and faith are the same thing. And so, uh, what did they do? They meant business about their repentance. Uh, they believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. So it was an immediate effect of Jonah's preaching and God's dealing with the people about their sins uh, that uh, they turned to God. Now, verse 6 says, For the word came unto the king of Nineveh. The word reached even to the palace, king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne. Now look. And he laid his robe from him, this fancy kingly robe. He laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth. Look at this king. You know, God's message and God's word can touch even the greatest of men. And here the king was affected and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. This was symbolical. Sackcloth and ashes was symbolical of mourning and repentance in the Old Testament time and time again. Job, when he had seen God, he says, I now repent in sackcloth and ashes. And uh, so he turned to God that way. And he says, how is it that God looks upon me who am but dust and ashes when Job characterized himself? And that's all it signifies is worthlessness on his part. Now then, verse 7, And he caused it to be proclaimed, the king now, and published throughout through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed nor drink any what drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. And yea, let them turn every one from his evil way, look, real repentance, and from the violence that is in their hands. Let's stop there for a moment. What did they do? From the king to all the servants. And he said, even the cattle are not going to get it. Even the beasts. There's not going to be any food or drink. Don't even go out and feed the cows. 
Don't uh, let anything have any drink. Can you imagine? You talk about mourning and, and crying. Think of the beast creation, let alone the people. We know people would mourn and cry in such situations. But think about all your animals that were refused food and water. I mean, they really, they really get upset too, don't they? When they don't get something to eat or drink. And we do as well as the beast creation. But that's what the, the king said. And he made the decree. That they were not to feed them anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. Last part of verse 7. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way. Now, the, the beast did not turn from an evil way. They have no consciousness of sin like we do. But man could turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. So it was really a time of true repentance. Now then, I want you to notice especially verse 9. Who can tell if God will uh, turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not? They were throwing themselves upon the mercy of God. And that's the best place anyone can find, is to throw himself upon God's mercy. Not try to justify or, or pass the buck or try to squirm out of a situation that we're in, but openly, honestly confess to God that we've sinned and come short of the glory of God. Or that whatever the chastening hand of God is upon us, whatever evil is in in our midst, it needs to be forsaken and turned to God. Now then, I want to read verse 10 and then get to something in Jeremiah. It says in verse 10, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil, that is the judgment, the destroying of the city, that He had said that He would do unto them, and He did it not. Now someone says, you see, God does repent and change His mind. The Bible says, I'm the Lord, I, I do not repent. And here, you don't have Him repenting, you have Him following a, a principle. Though it says repent, I want you to see what God says He will do concerning situations of men. It really means that God is just simply keeping uh, His Word that He has promised to nations and men. I want you to turn the book of uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, if you will. Jeremiah chapter 18. And see that God here is acting upon a principle that He had established in His Word. And so when it says He repented of the evil that He would do, He didn't bring that evil upon them because He had promised He's still keeping His Word. And He lays down a principle of action in the book of Jeremiah chapter 18. I want you to read it. Listen. Uh, Beginning with verse uh, uh, 6. O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? And we could read the whole thing about the potter and the clay, but I won't go into that. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so you in my hand, O house of Israel. Jeremiah 18 verse 7. At what instance, now look, here's the principle that's set down in God's Word. He said, at what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull, and to pull down, and to destroy it. If that nation, look at it, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. So what he's saying here, upon the basis of this principle of that nation turning From their evil, I will not bring the evil. It doesn't mean he changed his mind about sin or about judgment. It means that they made a condition that he had laid down that he would do in those circumstances. That's why that it's very important to realize what the word repent really means. 
In the case of God, it just means he's following a principle of his own character and nature and the laws that he's laid down and he's going to do. You remember Abraham says, will not the God, a judge of all the earth, do right? And he will with nations and men. So he goes on to say in verse 9, uh, At what instance I shall speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it? If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. So it works both ways. And God was laying down this principle of action, and that's what uh, was met in the book of Jonah. Turn back to Jonah now quickly, if you will. So when it says in chapter 3, verse 10, and God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil. It doesn't mean He changed His mind about sin. It doesn't mean that God does go about changing His mind. It means that God is keeping His word that He's laid down, that this is the principle of action He would take if a nation would repent. And this nation did repent, and so therefore uh, He would not bring the judgment that he had, he had determined to bring upon them had they not repented. And God repented of the evil that He said that He would do unto them, and He did it not. And it was in perfect keeping with the word that He promised, wasn't it? Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, I want you to notice this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Now, here's a man, a prophet, that gets a whole city, a great city of a million people. We'll just use that as a round figure. We don't know how many there were. Says a half a million. It still doesn't matter. It's a great city. Uh, 120,000 children. It tells in the 11th verse. But say all of this city was called to repentance and turning to God, and it makes the prophet, the preacher, mad. He gets angry about it. I mean, can you imagine that? And you know why he was angry? Because he had preached the message of judgment and God wasn't going to judge them. Now? And his... his uh, Pride was at stake. He was acting more like a politician than a preacher, wasn't he? And see, just follow his uh, thought, if you will. He was angry about it. And then God deals with him on this basis. And this is a very interesting fourth chapter, and we'll try to cover it. We have plenty of time to do it. But I want you to notice. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet... In my country. Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. He says, he's using this for an excuse that he wouldn't go to Nineveh to start with. That's why he was running away on the first call. And that's why he fled to Tarshish. And here's what he was confessing. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. He says, I knew you would do this. And that's why I didn't come with this message of judgment on Nineveh, because I knew you'd be gracious to them and forgive them. And if, you, if they would repent, you'd do this very thing. He says, isn't this the word that I knew you about? He knew about God. He knew He was a gracious God and merciful God and slow to anger and of great kindness and would turn from this judgment that He was going to bring upon them. And so He says, this is why I didn't go in the first place. This is why I fled and see... Man finds every excuse in the world not to do what God wants him to do. And if you read back there in the first chapter, it's so interesting how that when God told him to go... Verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare thereof. 
went down into it to go with him to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. He was running away because what? He knew that the message of judgment that he had for Nineveh, that God was a gracious God, and if they met that condition of repentance, that God would not bring that judgment upon them. Isn't that an amazing thing? But the most amazing thing about it is, in the middle of verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, look at it. Therefore I fled before unto Tarsus. He says, this is why I did that. For I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Here he's so down and out. He's like Elijah. Remember Elijah at one time running from Jezebel? Says, God, I just want to die. And God had just given Elijah the greatest victory. You know, he was on, the, on Mount Carmel, and he prayed to God to... to uh, uh, send fire down from heaven and consume the sacrifice and the offering and everything that he had laid in order and lick up the water that was in the trench in Elijah's day. And he says uh, to the people, why halt, halt you between two opinions? If God is God, serve Him. And if Baal is God, you serve Baal. The false prophets, false gods. And uh, of course, the prophets of Baal, they had their time of trying to get their God to answer and He wouldn't answer and they leaped upon the altar and they cried to God and old Elijah made fun of them. He says, maybe he's on a vacation. Maybe he's, pursu- maybe he's chasing the enemy. He's pursuing. And he, it's kind of, I cannot read that without coming to a little sense of humor. Because old Elijah there says, you know, your God can't hear you. He says, maybe, maybe he's, his ears are stopped up. Maybe he doesn't know you're crying to him. And says, perhaps he's gone, gone on a vacation. He's out of your reach and out of your sight. Uh, Perhaps uh, that uh, he just uh, is ignoring you. And he used a lot of things. Anyway, when Elijah had set the sacrifice after they cried and cried until a whole long time from morning till noon. And what did Elijah do? Until the time of the evening sacrifice. And he prepared the altar and he put wood on the altar and the sacrifice on the altar. And remember, it was in time of famine and drought. And he took all the water that could be found and he saturated that sacrifice and that wood. It's pretty hard to start a fire on burnt wood, isn't it? And on, I mean, on uh, wet wood. Uh, it's pretty hard to get wet wood to, to burn. If you've ever been out in the woods in the wintertime and try to start a fire, you need a little something that's dry and of a matter to get started. But anyway, to make a long story short, after all this trench was filled with water, he cried unto God and he says, God, if, if I'm your servant and if you're God, of this people. He says, hear this prayer. You, you could have said this prayer in 30 seconds or 45 seconds. And God sent fire down from heaven, consumed the sacrifice, consumed the wood upon the altar, and consumed the, the licked up the water in, in the trench round about the sacrifice and the altar. And uh, so he proved that God was God. Okay, the point we want to make is that Elijah, after that was, experience was over, Old Jezebel started chasing. And when she did, he cried, says, God, why did you? He says, why? He says, I'm the only man left. Finally, God told him, he says, Elijah, instead of having this pouting pity party for yourself, he said, listen, I have yet 7,000 men that have not yet bowed knee to Baal. So when you and I think we're the only one that's standing for God, and we're the only one that's going to try to stay faithful, Remember, there are other folks around, and we need to realize that. Sometimes we get the idea that we're the only one. I had a preacher, I heard a preacher preaching one time as if he were the only one. And uh, I had to 
enter the pulpit and straighten that business out before their Sunday school and the service was over that day. He was having a revival down in Mount Pleasant, Texas. And uh, I had him there for preaching. And boy, I tell you, it was just pitiful. And uh, so we didn't have the rest of that revival. I got up during Sunday school. People came in at Sunday school time uh, for Sunday school and the end of it for the service. And we, I was still up there and they wondered what in the world is going on. And so I just kept on preaching right on through the preaching service. And that night this evangelist was gone and I preached the rest of the revival myself. And that night some people were saved too and joined the church. Uh, but anyway, to make a long story short, when you get this idea, I just want to put this over, that you're the only one that's left. Just remember, God has some others around and He's going to have them around too. Alright, back to this. Chapter 4 of Jonah. It says... Uh, in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, I, uh, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? Said Jonah, are you justified in acting like this? Do you well to be angry? So Jonah went out, out of the city, ran away again, sat down on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, just made him a shelter, and sat under it in the shadow, till he might see what would become of the city. He wanted to stay there until... Till he could see if God did destroy Nineveh. He just wanted to see if, if he's going to back off and not destroy it since they'd repented or what's going to become of the city. Now, in verse 6, And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. God has this fast-growing plant to grow up around his booth you know, imagine out there in the desert and nowhere and no trees around and he's made this little booth and shelter. And here God sends a fast-growing gourd, miraculously grown, to shatter him from the heat of the day. And he was glad about the gourd. See, God, God sent a storm that was, and God, God uh, prepared a fish. And now what? God prepares a gourd. And Jonah was glad about the gourd. Now look. And the Lord prepared a gourd and made it come up over Jonah that it might shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Now look, verse 7. But God prepared a worm. By the way, don't ever get too comfortable in your situation. Because there's always, you know, you have a beautiful, have you ever gotten a great big beautiful red apple and all of a sudden you'll see a wormhole in there? Think, my, what a beautiful apple this is. But you know there's a worm around in every, every situation. It's not always roses, is it? It's not always good. There's always got to be something to disturb the peace and comfort of your life. You know, I used to know folks that, uh, they, when things were going pretty smooth, they just knew some, some tragic thing was about to happen. Kind of like the lady says, I feel bad when I feel good because I know that I'm going to feel worse. <laughs> so, why can't we feel good for at least a little while? So, old Jonah, he was comfortable. He was doing fine. And it says, but God prepared a worm when the morning rose uh, the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered. He took away all that comfort. And it came to pass when the sun did rise that God prepared a vehement east wind, a hot, sultry, dry wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die. And he said, It is better for me to die than to live. You see, God had prepared an east wind. The gourd was taken away. The worm ate the gourd up. And then he sent an east wind, and there was no protection whatsoever. 
And there Jonah was, and it beat upon the head of Jonah, and he wished to die. In verse 9, And God said unto Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. You know, I can be angry because you took away the gourd, the only shelter I have. But God gave the gourd, didn't he? Now look. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, says you didn't bring it about, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Now he's teaching Jonah a lesson, the last verse. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? You've judged me, he's saying to Jonah, you've judged me for taking away the gourd. You've judged me for the actions I've taken. And now, and you've judged that gourd for disappearing, but what about myself and sparing this city? So he wanted to show Jonah that he was sovereign in what he was doing, and that he was justified uh, perfectly in giving a life to that city, that wicked city that had repented of their sins. And I think you get the lesson in the book of Jonah. 